Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today I'm speaking with Laura Arnold Liebman about early American Jewish history and material culture. What are the big lessons that we learn from looking at a handful of small objects? Laura Arnold Liebman is Professor of English and Humanities at Reed College. Her general field of interest is in religion and American culture prior to the American Civil War. Her 2012 book, Messianism, Secrecy, and Mysticism, A New Interpretation of Early American Jewish Life, was awarded a Jordan Schnitzer Book Award and a National Jewish Book Award. And she recently published The Art of the Jewish Family, A History of Women in Early New York in Five Objects, which is what we're going to talk about today on the podcast. The Art of the Jewish Family is an exciting book which uses microhistory and material culture, looking at individual lives and histories through material objects to tell a big story about Jewish women and New York and the wider Atlantic world from 1750 to 1850. The objects which she focuses on in the book include a letter written in 1761 where a woman requests financial aid from one of New York's leading synagogues, silver cups, ivory miniatures, commonplace books, and family portraits. All of these objects illustrate different aspects of people's lives, and altogether, they tell us an important set of stories about people who don't always make their way into the history books. I hope that you'll check out Laura's very exciting book. If you purchase it directly from the press, and I've shared a link to it in the show notes, you can use the code AJFJHM15 for a 15% discount. Again, thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters. I hope that you'll enjoy our conversation about how material objects and material culture illuminates our understanding of American Jewish history and why it matters. So hi, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm very glad to have you join me on the podcast. I mean, I think it's just a fantastic book. And I hope that today in our conversation that we'll be able to talk about what it means to look at the history of early American Jewish history, what it means to look at it through material culture, what it means to talk about gender uh, in this context. There's just so much going on in this book through such a small number, really a handful literally five objects. The heart of this book is really about material culture. So when you think about material culture and what we learn from it, why is this important? Why is this an avenue through which we should be looking at things? What does material culture essentially help to teach us about Jewish history at large, and also more specifically about the topic that you're thinking about in this book? On the one hand, material culture for me is very much a way of getting around questions of how do I write the history of people who left very few written records. So when a group of people such as women during this time period had less access to education or what they had written was just not valued, so it wasn't kept, how do I create a complex narrative about them given that lack of sources? And turning to objects is certainly one way 
to fill that gap. So there's that aspect of material culture for me. But I don't want it to seem like it's just a stand-in for the textual production. I think what ends up being really important to me is when we look at the objects that mattered to women and the spaces where women flourished, our story about American Judaism changes. And for me, that's what's so important is by having this moment of being forced to look at other kinds of sources, suddenly I'm not thinking about the synagogue as the center of Jewish life. So I'm not writing the same kind of narrative. I'm thinking about what Judaica means differently because suddenly who gets to use what kinds of objects matters. So really just shifting the story because of the sources, that the sources allow us to focus on why I think certain things are important and why historically other people have de-emphasized certain parts of American Jewish history. I definitely want to get to this very important intellectual question of which sources that we use to study history at large and American Jewish history in particular. But I want to push you on here is to kind of step away from the historiographical or the methodological side of things. The way that I'm thinking about this is, is there a different kind of lesson or a different kind of history that we learn from looking at the material objects that are left behind by people from this period when we're thinking about this period of Jewish history or kind of Jewish history as a whole? One thing that's really important about looking at Jewish history as a history of objects as opposed to just text is it emphasizes the physicality of Judaism as a religion and the fact that Jews are embodied people as opposed to just human heads wandering around thinking deep thoughts. So what happens when I remember that Jews have an embodied experience that impacts the way that intellectual tradition works so that I'm not just an intellectual tradition in a vacuum? Right. I think like it's really critical to point out that these things are not mutually exclusive to one another. I think one way to think about the set of issues is that when we think about material culture in Jewish history, what does the record of material culture teach us that is unique and meaningful about Jewish history? I think it is really important, particularly for talking about family legacy, to think about the way that Judaism is totally about how we physically engage with each other and use objects to mediate those kinds of experiences. So there is a way in which I think it's actually pretty natural if you ask just regular people or your students, what is the thing that you would associate with your, you know, an older relative that that passed away? Usually it's not a book. I do think there is a way in which it reminds us that history is a construct, right? that we're constantly creating narratives about the past and stories about the past. And I don't mean a construct in that, like, we just make up stuff and it's all invented, but our focus says a lot about what we value. And right now, we're in a moment where we're trying to think about ourselves as human actors in the world. It opens up these different opportunities of how we think about the past. Just to give you a sort of personal example that I've been working a lot this summer on the yellow fever epidemic of 1822 in New York. And there's so many things, like this is the time period I work on all the time, like both the book that we're talking about today and the next book that's coming out are about that time period in New York. And yet suddenly because of COVID, 
my understanding of all these events of what was going on and who, what was happening, I realized, oh, this is about yellow fever. It's not about these other things that we thought it was. So I think what's going on with us definitely channels our focus in different ways. And just being aware of the fact that people in the past who created the sources that we use had certain things they were interested in. And we have that opportunity also when we go back to the archives of thinking about what am I interested in today? And personally, I would say also just as an Orthodox woman, when I think about where does my Judaism lie, my Judaism lies in a lot of things that I do. Judaism is a religion of doing, but not just in the synagogue, right? You know, it has to do with what I do on a daily basis and what objects I use that belong to family members and what I cook and what I, how I arrange my house and all sorts of things that, that just aren't coming across when I look at certain other sources. I'm really struck by your point that we need to think about the past as a past of real people. I think there's a spectrum of, of approaches to history, to thinking about the past, and people do all sorts of different things. You know, within Jewish history, depending on the disciplinary or intellectual perspective from which you are coming, some people are intellectual historians. They really focus on the history of ideas. Some people focus on the history of religion. Some people focus on uh, economic history. Some people focus on social history. I could give the whole laundry list of disciplines and, and approaches, but thinking about how we can think about the people of the past as real people who had real lives throughout the entire course of their lives and who interacted with the world in many cases similarly to the way in which we do, which is on a day-to-day -day basis through the objects that surround them in their housing environment, health, which is an issue that you just talked about, as well as sickness, you know, relationships with their family members, you know, parents, children, etc. Um, and I think that the focus on material culture helps us to think in those terms, which especially I think I talk about myself as an intellectual and cultural historian, in which those two things don't always go together. But I think about both Jewish history as a history of ideas, and also Jewish history as a history of culture, a history of people themselves. And I think that one of the interesting things that looking at the history of material culture allows us to do is to think in both of those terms. Because like you said, it raises this complex issue of what is left from one generation to the next. I think in many ways, this is a central question within Jewish history. What is the Jewish tradition or Jewish traditions, plural? What is Jewish culture or Jewish cultures? How do they get transmitted from one generation to the next? And material culture is one of these components. You know, It's not just about ideas that people learn from the past, but somebody has a book a physical book that has these things from a point in time in the past, or somebody has an heirloom, or somebody has a collection of papers or a photograph or some kind of you know ritual object, you know, the list could go on and on. I think that part of what's interesting about material culture is, like you said, it allows us to think in these terms. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that there's a general utility in terms of material culture, but for me, for this particular time period between 1750 and 1850, this is the age where suddenly people are obsessed with emotions and affect and how they relate to other people. And that if they could feel the right things, it would change the way that they think. So if there was any time period where we wanted to like get at that embodied issues and how bodies relate and how emotions add to the story, this would be the time period where we need to like look for those kinds of sources. Can I focus on this word feel or feeling that you talked about? Because it seems to me that there are two meanings 
to this, right? Because you're talking about feelings and emotions as an ephemeral thing. But also when we talk about material culture, there's also the feeling materially of these objects. If you have a silver spoon or something like that, it might evoke a feeling, but it also has a, a feeling that one has physically when you pick it up. And the same can be said about anything else. That's a lovely thing to bring up that in some sense that feelings are not just about my internal mental state, but are brought about because I'm an embodied person, right? So objects in particular are sensory and so hence necessarily bring up questions about my relationship to the sensory world. And again, the 19th century is all about this, right? Particularly the first part of the 19th century. So for me to talk about a time period where they're obsessed with that issue of how I relate physically, what's the relationship between the mind and body experience. Objects are just crucial for that conversation. I do think different things in different time periods, right? That they add different parts to the conversation. It's not like material culture always does one thing. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing to also to think about in this context, again, about the different modes of Jewish history and what material culture adds to it, going back to what you said about thinking about Jewish history as a history of real people, um, I think there's a tendency in terms of how people think about Jewish history, uh, especially in a, in a popular sense, but even among many scholars, is that we, we do think about Jewish history in terms of actual people, but primarily when we talk about the bad things. Right When we're talking about violence, when we're talking about massacres and expulsions, about the Holocaust, those are the points in history where people very naturally and correctly say, look, Jewish history is a history of actual people, right? Look, these are the people who were killed, etc. But I think that looking at material culture, especially in the way that you're doing it, allows us to think about Jewish people within history as people in times that are not so bad, in ways that are more positive. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. It gets back to my earlier question about like, when do we think certain kinds of sources matter? But I think your point that Jews are willing to talk about embodied experience when they're concerned about us having an emotional response to the past. And when are we supposed to guard our feelings against the past? I would say for me that personalizing, this was sort of came up in an issue, maybe a little bit tangentially, but a discussion that I had with a friend, Barbara Mann, while I was working on the book about, did I want to refer to the women in the book by their first name or by their last names? And certainly the feminist in me was like, well, their last names are changing, first of all, because they're getting married or not married during various points. But also they are the patriarchal names. Like there's nothing like super important about that. And for me, that referring to them by the first name really emphasized, I wanted people to think about the personhood, in part because I, even though I do use them to talk about larger trends, I don't want us to lose that moment that they were individual people with individual lives, that I do think there's something that I'm working against in Jewish history of the great man theory. So this isn't intended to be the great woman theory. These are supposed to be average women on some level, right? Or just women who had distinctive lives, but not because they need to be exemplars or because they are the people who are the movers and shakers in history. I'm trying to think about where history lies and whose voices matter for creating a history. And I want people to think about when I choose, if I'm in a classroom, 
and I'm teaching children about Jews in early America, what does it mean when I select certain people as being the people they need to know about and not other people? And what message does that send? And I would say, particularly for me right now, when we're thinking about like our lives seem so fragile all of a sudden, how do I want to be remembered, right? Like, what would it be the thing that makes somebody worth being remembered going forward and whose lives matter, right? Like, what does it mean to have certain voices count and others not count? Right. So this is a, a crucial issue that I want to get to in just a moment about whose voices that we're listening to. I want to ask you one kind of additional question to broaden the lens of material culture. As we've talked about why material culture matters for understanding Jewish history, but if we broaden the lens and look at other things, you know, I can think of at least three different realms as they relate to your book that we can think about, which is that when we're talking about American history and when we're talking about the history of the New York region in particular, and here I'm thinking about the ways in which the New York region has a certain kind of archaeological history, actually, that a lot of parts of the United States do not. And the entire eastern seaboard is full of sites that have archaeological possibilities. But in New York, as they build and they dig up foundations, they often find things. So there's a certain element of how material culture informs the history of New York, New York City. So we can talk about material culture in American history at large, material culture in New York, and then also kind of more broadly about early modern history. You've already started talking about the sources. You know, what does material culture bring to our understanding of this period in its various contexts in local, regional, global, that other sources do not? Like, why is it that material culture is so important for understanding this kind of history? This speaks a little bit, I would say, to how I came to the topic, just more broadly in terms of my work, that I think of myself as an early Americanist, and my dissertation and my first book were on Native American communities in the Northeast. And for those projects that material culture were really an important way of recognizing the privilege of who writes and who decides what sites in a particular location deserve to be written over and which sites should be memorialized. For me, that is a constant thing that material culture does have in New York, this tendency, I would say it's not accidental what ends up getting buried or covered over it in New York. It's not just that the city expands and things disappear. Certain things from this time period are lovingly memorialized and fenced off and kept as sacred. And other things are not. And that excavations of when people remove the foundations of a building and are building a new building and we're like, whoa, there was a past here that inserts itself into the present and it refuses to be ignored. I think that is pretty important in terms of just remembering that there is a strategy to cities in terms of urban planning of cities are in some sense also self-fashioning, right? Like that they're who is in power creates a sense of who's at the center of the city and who's worth narrating. And I, I do think that that's crucial for understanding New York that in a class that I teach, I teach about Harlem in particular. And I think it's really important to think about how different sites in New York that today are not African-American neighborhoods were once African-American neighborhoods that people got pushed out of those spaces in order to create other kinds of spaces. So 
really, really important in terms of why people move and how people get forced to move through space. And I do think that that there is a way in which those attempts to bury the past, the material objects, there's, for me, a couple different ways that they can function. One is the things that end up in museums or in historical societies where somebody was like, yes, this is what I want people to remember about our past and has been lovingly cherished and is an heirloom that is now being memorialized for all perpetuity in terms of this collection versus the things which people attempted to keep from being memorialized and keep from being remembered. I have that moment in the book where I talk about going to the cemetery in Barbados, the Jewish cemetery, and there was an excavation of a certain area of it, and suddenly certain things were being uncovered that hadn't been there, and that there were all these fragments of things that weren't the things that were meant to be remembered. They were the things from the trash pit that suddenly are being brought to the surface again. There is a way in which the things we try to hide or throw away do come back in terms of objects. And those objects are important to me as much as the ones that end up in museums. We've talked kind of very generally in big terms about why material culture matters for understanding Jewish history, for understanding the history of New York, etc. But here you've selected, again, the process of curation, a process of selecting um, five objects, which you want to highlight in your book. Can you maybe tell us about one of them, which you think stands out out of the ones that you selected as you know, your favorite or something? I know that, that that's kind of a hard question because it's kind of like asking you, which is your favorite child, to which there never is a good answer. But if you had to pick one of them, do you maybe want to talk about one of the objects that you think is really interesting? Yes, I would say it's it's hard to pick one, though. I certainly have been more obsessed with certain of the objects. And so maybe I'll start with my deep obsession. So the object in the third chapter, which is the ivory miniature, has definitely been an obsession with me for a number of years. And as the subject, the woman who's in it is the main character, subject, historical character in the book that's coming out after this one. So I definitely obsess over that one a little bit more than the other one. So the portrait is of Sarah Brandon Moses. She is a woman who lived only for about 30 years. She's born enslaved in Barbados and ends up one of the wealthiest Jews in New York. And by the end of her life has been recategorized as white by both the New York census and the white Jewish community in New York. And I'm really interested in how the object mediates some of that transformation, as well as just how racial categories differ across the Atlantic and her moving around and having a very wealthy father who's willing to sponsor her travels allows her, along with her racial ambiguity, to have this sort of movement through time and space. So the miniature itself is beautiful. And I have to say, as somebody who works on objects, I'm always drawn to the really amazing objects. You know, like you don't start with like, what's a crappy object that I could talk about for a long time that, you know, occasionally I do work on things that I don't think are great, but there's something about her object. It's just extremely well-made. We don't know who painted it. It's anonymous, but it's very well done and would be a great miniature, even if we didn't know about her backstory. But since we do know about her backstory, I think it becomes even more interesting. So for me, part of what happens with that miniature is thinking about what role it plays in her life 
and the different journeys that she's on in terms of herself and her identity over time. Yeah. So when you're thinking about this particular ivory miniature, you know, what stories does it tell us? As you mentioned, a woman whose life changed tremendously over its course. The miniature itself was, according to family tradition, was made in London while she was in school there. So she is born enslaved. She is freed by her father. She's Her father pays her slave owner to have her manumitted. And she goes to Suriname with her brother and converts while she's in Suriname and then ends up going on to London where she goes to an elite boarding school and the miniature's made while she's there, while she's a teenager awaiting a sort of glorious marriage to one of New York's elite Jews. And the miniature is part of this marriage negotiation process for many Jews in the Atlantic world at this time. And it is different kinds of portraiture kind of ebb and flow in terms of when they're popular. Miniatures are all the rage at this particular moment for both men and women. And really are, they're very intimate portraits as opposed to a large portrait, even though they cost about the same amount of money and are very much something that people would exchange as part of the engagement process as a way of making that emotional bond or connection to somebody. So I'm really interested in in this chapter and comparing what her miniature looks like compared to other Jewish women's miniatures from this time period and from other women of partial African ancestry in New York and in the other places that she lived from this time period and thinking about how the miniature itself is a genre very much devoted to emphasizing the glory of whiteness and that there's something really important about that choice of genre for her at this particular moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's so much to think about here. You've highlighted through one object the entire history of the Jews in the Atlantic world, right? Tying together the Caribbean, England, and New York, these three points, and geographically speaking, and also how these people are all interconnected with each other. And I think that it's really fascinating to think again. And the material culture, I think, helps us to understand this in very concrete terms, the connections between these places. Because as you said, she's waiting for an upcoming marriage to somebody across the ocean who she probably has never met, and vice versa as well. And so the miniature is a way, especially prior to photography, for them to see each other. Yes, mainly. So I would say definitely that that is one way that miniatures get used during this time period. The guy she ends up marrying, Joshua Moses, is pretty obsessed with the way that people dress in fabrics. He's a fabric merchant, and he works for Stephen Gerrard in London. So he comes right after the end of the War of 1812 back to London to work as a cloth merchant for sort of high fashion of what's going to be brought back. So I do think there's something really interesting about who she ends up marrying. She probably ran into him at Bevis Marks. But there is a way in which their marriage is also very much between the two fathers of the couple, that her father is one of the wealthiest merchants in Barbados, and his father is the wealthiest Jewish merchant in New York. And it's very much an alliance of two major families. So there is a way in which the miniature is very private and very much about affection between people. But they're also subject to these larger forces around them. 
Well, exactly. And I think that two of the other issues that you've mentioned here kind of in passing is the issue of gender and the issue of race, the issue of whiteness. I think it's pretty striking to have a miniature in ivory for somebody who wants to be seen as white. That seems to me very, very important. So do you maybe want to say something briefly about, you know, again, this small object teaches us a big lesson in terms of thinking about how gender and how race and whiteness function at this time period, both among Jews within the Atlantic world and also just in general? Well, you were mentioning the sort of three points of the triangle trade before, and I guess I would add Africa to the other place where Jews are involved. I would add Africa into that, and not just because of enslaved people and Sarah does have ancestors coming from there, but I think the ivory points to that aspect too, right? That whiteness is very much about this moment in Atlantic history that's about trade and what kinds of goods are being used to produce whiteness. I do think it's very telling that at a moment where Jews position in the so-called racial science categories of race, where Jews are going to fit is very much being questioned. Are they white? Are they not white? Are they Caucasian? Are they not Caucasian? Are they a separate category? That Jews turn to this art form as one of their main types of art that is so much about not just trade with Africa, but about presenting sort of the glory of whiteness. So when they make these miniatures, they cut very thin slices off of a piece of elephant tusk and then use a process to make it almost transparent and then use watercolor on top of it. And the idea behind the watercolor, originally people would use some oil paints, but the oil paint really obscures the ivory. So in both Sarah's portrait and her brother's portrait and many of the good portraits from this time period, rely on that sort of glow and translucent whiteness as a positive feature for the miniatures. And in fact, they often would put a piece of silver sheeting behind the face to sort of enhance the echo of the light and get more of the glow of whiteness. So really is so much about this time period. And I do think that her story is about a woman who was racially ambiguous and had ties to Africa and et cetera, et cetera, but is also very poignant for what's going on with Jews more broadly, that this is part of the larger Jewish conversation. And certainly the community that she's part of in Barbados, her brother is part of the discussion about Jewish civil rights on the island and ends up getting kicked out of the synagogue because of that dispute. And her family on her mother's side is part of the discussion about civil rights for free people of color. So very much a family that's involved in politics around race and around rights. And the miniatures play a role in that in terms of what Jews' relationship to civil rights and to the body politic. The one thing that you didn't really touch on there so much was the gender aspect. But I think it it offers us a chance actually to get into a much bigger set of issues. That this book is not just a history of Jews in early New York through objects, but a history of women Jewish women in this time and place. When you think about material objects, when you think about the historical sources that we have to study the past in general and to study this time period and place in particular, to what extent would you say that women's voices are lost to history in general and more specifically lost in the historical sources of this time period and place? And how are you, through looking at material objects, 
able to reclaim them and showcase the history of women and the history of gender in ways that are not as easy to do in other ways. That question about reclaiming women's voices for me really speaks to the cutoff point of the book of ending in 1850 that when you look at women in American Jewish history, obviously for decades, we've been trying to get more women back into American Jewish history. And I feel like that's been really successful for the time period where women write prolifically and where women had a lot of access to education, but has been very much a struggle for those of us who work on the early time period. And personally, I know that I've been called out for not like having enough women with the book, Messianism book, when it went out for review originally, um, just the first chapter was on ritual baths. And one of, you know, reviewer number two, of course, thought that it was horrible, as reviewer number two always does. And whoever it was reviewed and said, I just don't understand how this discussion of ritual baths is about women. And also argued I needed to take Messianism out of the book, which proved to be very difficult since it was a book about Messianism. So I sort of ignored what reviewer number two said for a number of years being like, humph. But I would say that point about once I got over my annoyance at review number two about the messianism part, I do think that the reviewer was correct, right? That what I would like to know about women in the ritual bath, a lot of the sources were not quite there. And I think that's where it tells part of the story, but not all of the story. That for me, moving outside of the synagogue complex and into the home for this book made a huge difference in terms of being able to tell a richer story about women's lives. So I I guess I want to differentiate between gender being not just about objects, but what kinds of objects we think and where Judaism lies. Am I only Jewish when I'm in the synagogue complex? Or am I Jewish when I'm doing really quotidian, everyday kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to questions of sources. You know, as you know, I'm uh, literally writing a book about the history of archives. So I'm always thinking about what are the sources, what are people using, what is it that makes its way down to the present that we can actually study versus what doesn't survive and then forecloses on our possibility to understand those aspects of the past. And this is an issue which I think comes forward in your book as well. I was struck by your discussion, particularly in the introduction where you talk about the need to expand the definition of evidence, of historical evidence that we're looking at, um, and listen to silences in the archive. And of course, this again is a a very common way of talking about that we have a historical record, not everything gets put there. You know, people choose what makes its way in, choose not to preserve other things. As a result, the historical record has silences. It has spaces where certain people's voices aren't there, or they've been erased, or something along those lines. As you're looking at material culture and as you're thinking about the archives of American Jewish history and what kinds of materials are available for most people to study and what thereby gets the most attention, what do you think are the problems there? What do you think that it means to expand our definition of evidence and listen to the silences in the archive? And why do you think that it's so important for us to understand this time period? For me, that expanding our definition of evidence is not just recognizing that there are objects, but thinking about how our presumptions about those different sources have biased the way that we read them too. So the silver cups would be a good example of that, that they're on display at the Met, but they're not being highlighted 
they're in the context of colonial silver and they're not in the context of Jewish production. And their emphasis is on the men who made it and the men who owned it. When actually the woman is the person who's related to the maker of the cup. So, and her initials are on the cup as well, right? So why emphasize one person as being more important than another? Part of what's so interesting and so important about your work on material culture in this book in particular, but also kind of the work on material culture in general, is that it focuses us on objects that are not always studied as historical objects. Back to the ivory miniature that basically when I see people using them in books, it's just like, there was a Jew, here's a picture of that Jew, as if somehow they're the same thing. For me, the material culture is not just like, oh, there's a portrait, but really thinking hard about the portrait as evidence and evidence of what. So this is a portrait of somebody of how they strategically wanted to be presented. And for me, the portraits for both women and men, but particularly for women, give us evidence about women's dress in particular and women's hairstyles and how they cover their hair in ways that would just be almost impossible to access otherwise. So I would have no way of knowing what kind of dress Sarah Brandon Moses wore in 1815 if it weren't for the miniature. And likewise, I wouldn't know her policy about whether she wanted to be visually identified in terms of the kind of headscarf she wore, like other women with partial African ancestry often were in miniatures during this time period. And she chooses not to, that she chooses to have her head uncovered, probably to signal that she's not married, right, from Jewish tradition. So I do think that there's, for me, the portrait miniatures, there's both the issue of genre that I was talking about before, of it's important what kind of portrait it is and how it was made and the materials that made it, but also the evidence it provides about women's everyday lives that we just, nobody bothered to record otherwise. We do, there is a New York Historical Society, there's a book on, um, that's a record book from a dressmaker in New York from, I think, about the 1840s to 1850s. And there are some Jewish women recorded in there. But that is rare, right? Like, it's so unusual to have that kind of evidence of what women are wearing and to be able to compare that to different kinds of communities. So for me, it's been really important to think about how this helps me understand women's self-presentation as people who own objects, not just the miniature, but the objects that are being presented in the miniatures too. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the key issues here also is about who is left out of the historical record. And again, one of the challenges of writing about the history of women, as you said, especially in an early time period, as opposed to more recently, is that there aren't as many written sources that are left written by these women. And I think that that's a really important aspect of this as well, which is that I think that you're able to tell a set of stories about Jewish women in early New York or within the early modern Atlantic world through these objects that if one limited themselves to textual sources, there would be the limits of, as you say, the silences in the archive. Maybe to speak to this, I mean, I think it's also important who I was able to cobble enough evidence together that I could tell their story and who ended up not making it into the book, even though I was obsessed with something, some object of theirs. So 
there's this fantastic silhouette by Edouard, the same person who made this silhouette in the last chapter. And it depicts a Jewish woman who he identifies as Rebecca Moses cutting a silhouette of two children. So it's a silhouette of a Jewish silhouette maker. We don't have any known silhouettes by Rebecca Moses. And so it's fascinating, right? Like you actually have a woman engaging in crafts during this time period. Unfortunately, there's about five or six women named Rebecca Moses during this time living in New York of Jewish women. So, and the children depicted don't really help to narrow it down. So going through this research, I was like, well, probably it's the Rebecca Moses who worked for Sheriff Israel and was a school teacher, but I don't actually know, right? And it just ended up being this thing of like, I knew too, too, too little, even though I love that miniature. But that's a great example. We have no other evidence about her making miniatures or of other Jewish women making miniatures from New York that I know of, not miniatures, silhouettes. And so we have no other evidence of Jewish women making silhouettes from New York that I know of from that time period. So if we didn't have that object, we lose out on like what kinds of cultural production and arts and self-presentation women are engaging in, that that story is just gone. I think this is a really important set of issues. Again, as I've mentioned, this is something that I think a lot about personally in terms of my own research. And I'm sure that there are also a lot of scholars listening in who are like, okay, yes, archives. I love archives. You know, I work in archives. I do my research there. What makes its way into the archive is such an important issue, et cetera. But I'm sure there are also people who are listening who are like bored to death and are saying, okay, why do I care what's inside the archive and what's not? And I think I want to focus on that. I want to focus on why this is important, which is to say that it's not just a professional question of what do I find when I visit the Center for Jewish History and the American Jewish Historical Society or the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati? What do I find there? and What do I not find there? You know, what stories can be told? What stories can't be told? Again, this is a methodological question, an intellectual question, but the question is, so what? You know, why does this matter? And I think that one of the keys to this is actually in a comment that you made in the introduction where you say that the stories and the histories that we tell about American Jewish history have been skewed. And I was wondering if maybe connect these issues, right? So when we're talking about, so to speak, silences within the archive and the way in which this history has been skewed or or told in certain ways, you know, first of all, what do you mean when you say that the stories we tell about American Jewry have been skewed? And why does it matter to tell these stories of, of women who, for these kind of methodological archival reasons that you were talking about, have been left out of the history beforehand? Why is it so important to center these women, to center this kind of history, you know, in terms of the broader project of understanding and conceptualizing the history of American Jewry at this time, and more broadly speaking as well? I think the, a great example of why it matters for me is the woman in the first chapter, Hannah Lusada, who's somebody who occasionally pops up in early colonial records. Sometimes she's been misidentified too. And she writes what's called a begging letter. We have so little in the historiography about poor Jews in early America, but they make up at least half of the community, sometimes more. So a third of Sheriff Israel's budget at this time is going to supporting poor Jews. But they're just not part of the story that people in starting, the guys who were interested in colonial history starting in the, the 50s through 70s, weren't really interested in that. They wanted to show the people who were like Jewish heroes and Jews who made it good and merchant princes and whatnot, and people who were revolutionary war heroes. 
she does not fit in that story very well because she's poor and she's constantly having to ask for assistance. But I think particularly as Jews who feel some sort of pressure as a model minority or about things we don't talk about today, it's really important that we know like Jews struggled financially in the past. It's not like all Jews were merchant princes, bankers who owned vast amounts of money. There has been a weird way in which that was the focus because there were lots of great sources for that. So going back and looking at Hannah, I was really interested in how even some of the discourse about her, some one of the historians who I admire very much, early historians had talked about her as being kind of a complainer. And I was like, yeah, she has to complain every year. That's like the genre of the letter, one. She's forced to ask for her yearly money in order to survive. They could have just given it to her and then she wouldn't have to write begging letters every year. But also, you know, coming out of Native American studies, these begging letters are something that Native American children are taught to write from letter manuals during this time period. And their discourse is almost exactly the same. So it's like, oh my gosh, she's got this genre down, right? Like she knows exactly what she needs to say. This is not, somebody had written to her, English is almost unintelligible. Well, she seems to have written at least two other languages, right? So really important to think about. It's not just that she doesn't write English well. There's reasons for that um, that are structural, but also that there are reasons why she's being forced to subjugate herself to the men in the community in order to get her yearly stipend. And that's not about her being a complainer. That's about what the men are demanding of her and what society thinks poor people should have to do in order to get resources. Right. So then what does that tell us on a larger scale, right? You've talked about what it tells us about this one individual and about the culture of philanthropy or the culture of uh, giving aid to the poor, etc. But what does that new perspective contribute to how we understand American history or colonial history in general, and then kind of turning the perspective on its side as well about American Jewish history as a whole. And I can think just again, you've highlighted the focus on rich people looking at 20th century American Jewish history. People would tend to focus on, for instance, the Jacob Schiffs. And so again, like looking at history in this, in this way, and what does this one person's story, why does it matter to tell her story in terms of understanding American history or colonial history and then Jewish history as as well. For me, it goes back to something that Jonathan Israel says, which is that Jews are both agents and subjects of empire. So I think for me that emphasizing the ways that she is a subject of structural forces that keep her from being able to do the things she needs to do, that's an important part of the story of women in early New York. At the same time, she also, before her husband dies and before she becomes impoverished, she is a slave owner. So she also is an agent of empire, right? And that Jews are complicated, that we're not all good, all bad, that Jews are people too. So there's that aspect, as opposed to some of the larger narratives about Jews and slavery that had been circulating earlier, either anti-Semitic arguments about Jews and slavery or just people wanting to sort of number count and say like, oh, Jews, not any more slave owners than other people. I think really important how Jews are implicated in structural oppression and also on the receiving end occasionally of structural oppression, right? That it's not, it's not a question of Jews as exemplars, but really trying to think about 
what is the legacy of Jews in American history? And very important for today, right, for our discussions about what is Jews' relationship to structural oppression. And I feel like very often the discourse today falls back into like Jews, all bad oppressors or Jews, oh, but no, no, I'm, I'm a good Jew, right? So I can't be an oppressor. I was oppressed myself. One could be both things, right? That those are both possible. And for me, at least thinking about the long legacy of Jews' relationship to structures of power, again, both as subjects and agents, can be important for helping us not erase things that happened in the past. This is something that, that we spoke about extensively with Mark Dollinger recently on the podcast about this question of understanding Jews both as people who have been historically persecuted, historically oppressed, but who also have unfortunately in you know some instances not not universally, but also you know played a role in terms of systems of oppression. And I think that that one of the interesting things looking at these individuals is that they highlight that this is not just a phenomenon of the 20th century or anything like that, but this is a phenomenon throughout history. Yeah. And again, I think there's a reason why the questions today harken back to this time period. So I think there's a reason why people seem confused about why does Farrakhan keep on bringing up Jews and slavery? I do think it's because as a community, we've been a little negligent about wanting to talk about the ways in which Jews participated in the triangle trade, either as people who are selling sugar or people who own slaves, right? So that ends up being important and but trying to nuance that conversation, right? So but the unwillingness to the reverting constantly to all good or all bad, I think neither of those is particularly helpful in terms of reckoning with the past. Yeah, I mean I think you actually just answered the next question I was going to ask you. I want to think about why this period of Jewish history why the early American period you're focusing in the book from about 1750 to 1850 here, you know, why this is so important. And I think that you've mentioned at least one of the potential answers to this question, which is that it complicates our understanding of the nature of American Jewish history. And I'll just point out, and this is a question that I posed, I think actually even in the very first episode of the podcast to Sherry Rabin, where we were talking about 19th century American Jewish history and why it is that it matters. And one of the issues that came up then was just that demographically speaking, numerically speaking, the number of American Jews increased so much beginning in the late 19th century and into the 20th century. And so we're talking about a much smaller Jewish community in general, really minuscule, especially when we talk about the 17th and 18th century, somewhere in the range, you know the number better than I do, but in the range of a number of hundreds of Jews you know, throughout the uh, North American colonies, you begin the book by looking at figures who make their way as refugees from Recife um, and elsewhere, and then the you know, first decades after the establishment of the U.S., you know, this really does tell a very different story in a lot of ways from what comes afterwards, just demographically speaking, but you're also saying that some of the same themes come through. So as you think about this book and about your other work focusing on the colonial period, you know, the early period of American Jewish history, why do you think that it's so important to tell that story? of early American Jewish history, what do we learn from it? Why does it matter? Um, and why does it matter so much that we have to dig and pull out the sources, you know, when so much didn't make its way up until the present? I think one issue 
it's the beginning of a story, right? And beginnings matter. So different theorists have different ideas about narrative. And one is the beginnings teach you how you're supposed to read the rest of the book. So introductions matter. And I think in that sense, the beginnings of Jewish American history teach you how you're supposed to understand Jews, who's a Jew, who counts, what is America, where is America? All those questions are embedded in what we say about early American Jewish history. So there's particularly, I mean, you see this in courses, certainly people starting with the colonial period going forward. But when we change the story about beginnings, we're also allowing ourselves to tell different stories for later. So I do think as somebody who thinks about beginnings a lot, that's important to me. Perry Miller, who's famous, old, now passed away long ago, scholar of early American history, primarily on the Puritans, talks about trying to have a beginning with which he could coherently begin. And he likes the Puritans because they provide a coherent beginning. And I've been very interested in my larger work about what does coherence mean? And what does it mean to use the colonies as a way of thinking about later problems, both in positive and negative ways? So I do think there's something, there's a certain weight on what do we do with Jews in early America that shifts what we're able to talk about later. For me, the New York story was also really important to to emphasize the women who were in New York often came from other places, right? Like none of these women lived their entire lives in New York. So a New York story isn't just about New York. And the Caribbean plays a huge role in the Jewish New York story during this time period, just in the way that the Caribbean is super important to later Jewish New York and later New York history. So really thinking about emphasizing the spread of Jewish history, but also how our beginnings shape the kinds of stories we're able to tell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm really struck by this focus on beginnings because I think that when we talk about narrative, the question of beginning and ending is always very important in terms of how stories, how histories are framed, how they're told. But I'm, I'm really struck by thinking about what is the beginning of the story and what that tells us about the rest of it, or at least what the teller wants us to know. And if you think about someone who's telling a story, they choose where to begin. And when they're telling a fictional story, also when they are writing a history. This is something that I've thought about a lot. I teach a class on historiography about how people write history and about the power of the telling of history, what that, why it matters, how we tell history one way versus the other. I mean, the class is, it's, it's actually about the history of Zionism, the history of Israel, you know, the history of Jewish nationalism. But I've ended up using the 1619 Project to talk to my students about the nature of historiography and what it means to tell a story in different ways. And the reason why I'm talking about 1619 Project is actually related closely to what we were just talking about, which is about this question of beginnings. Um, And I know that the 1619 Project from the New York Times has gotten its fair share of criticism. But what is interesting to me is this question of where do you start the story of America, right? Do you start the story of America with the story of people fleeing religious persecution? Or do you start it with the history of slavery in 1619, the first slaves arriving in, in the Americas from Africa? Depending on where you start the story, that leads to a radical rethinking of how you understand everything else that came afterwards. And this actually, I think, closely applies to what you were just talking about, thinking about the American Jewish history, which is 
what is the nature of American Jewish history? Now, of course, I think that that might be too essentializing. You know, there is no nature, right? I think it was Sholem, uh, Gershom Sholem, who said the essence of Judaism is that there is no essence, right? But that doesn't stop us from looking for one. And when we tell the story, there often is a thrust to it, you know, talking about what do we want people to learn from it. And if we begin the story of American Jewish history in 1654, which is pretty much universally where most people are going to start with Jews fleeing religious persecution, fleeing essentially the Inquisition, coming from Recife to New York as refugees, well, that tells a certain story about American Jewish history you know, that colors our understanding of the rest of American Jewish history as refugees fleeing from oppression to freedom. And I think that, I, I wonder if you maybe want to comment on that, which is to say, like, you know, where we start American Jewish history, how we think about American Jewish history in the early period. I use the term myself, you know, refugees from Recife. To what extent does that illuminate our understanding of American Jewish history, or does it obscure the history of, for instance, Jewish involvement in the slave trade and so on and so forth? Totally. I mean, I think it depends on what you say about Recife. Jews were in Recife in order to be involved in sugar production, which is so much tied to the, the triangle trade. So I think, again, it's sort of what, what story do I want to tell? Um, and certainly New York is no bastion of glory once they arrive there, which I try to emphasize. Like New York is kind of bleh compared to what they're used to in Recife at that point. I do think it's unusual for me to like start with this New York story. And partially I was writing a book at Bard Graduate Center in New York. It was thinking about New York Jews and what we say about them. But I do think that typically I don't tend to start with that moment for exactly the reasons that you mentioned, in part because I do work on Newport a fair amount, but I work on the Caribbean a lot. And so the Caribbean doesn't just automatically lead to New York. It takes a long time for New York to take off and become more important. It's really not until about 1825 that New York has any sort of larger community that rivals anything that you'd see in the Caribbean as terms of community. So there is something artificial about that. Sort of back to the Perry Miller thing that I mentioned. Perry Miller mentioned when he's worried about coherence, he's sitting in the middle of the Congo and he says, I didn't want to start with Jamestown because it fell apart and it wasn't, you know, I could have started with slavery, but I'm not going to. I'm going to start with the Puritans. This is, again, where I think that issue of, like, coherence, I do think beginnings are important, but that we need to think about the things that didn't work and the things that did work in terms of the colonial period, too. So I'm involved right now with Adriana Brodsky in editing a volume called Jews Across the Americas, which starts in 1492 and has a lot of resources from the Spanish colonies and the Portuguese colonies and from the Caribbean, as well as the early North America. And it's so interesting to me of like really forcing myself to think about when I start in the Spanish American colonies, the story shifts really dramatically as opposed to starting in New York. So that project, I would say, I don't think any of this work is done. I feel like we continue to grow and learn, or I continue to grow and learn each time I write something. And that we're all sort of in this moment of thinking about reassessing the past through becoming more aware in the present of what kind of Jewish community do I want to be a part of? What does it mean to be inclusive? One of the things we're emphasizing in the book is paying much more attention to sources about 
multiracial Jews from the colonial period to the present. And I think really emphasizing that diversity of the Jewish community is not something which is happened starting in 1970. That's something ongoing um, from an early time period. And slavery is something which has a huge legacy in terms of what's going on with Jewish communities. Were Jews responsible for the slave trade? No. Were Jews involved in slavery? Yes. Right. So it's really hard to find anybody from that time period who doesn't have some link in some ways to what's going on in terms of slavery. Yeah. I mean, I think this leads into what I think is going to be our final question or our final topic, which is you've talked about the idea of coherence and also the need to complicate the history and to understand its nuance and its complexity. When you think about this book, The Art of the Jewish Family, and when you think also about your other books, you know, thinking about the history of Messianism and the Caribbean Jewish community and so on and so forth, it's not just a question of where we begin, but what do we take away from it? When we think about someone who who looks at your books and, and yourself looking at your work, is there a kind of coherent message or a coherent vision that you want people to take away in terms of thinking about the early American or early Western Hemisphere, early Atlantic world Jewish communities? And why does it matter? That's a big question, but it's like, what do you want people to take away from looking at these small objects? They're taking away big lessons. What is the big takeaway here in terms of our understanding of the origins of in the early period of American Jewish history and where we go from there and how it relates, I guess, to your broader work, your broader intellectual project. A broader theme of my work has to do with trying to think about how adding more voices to the conversation changes the story that we're telling in ways that we've been talking about for the last however many minutes. In terms of changes the story, not just because it's adding voices, it's not an add women and stir kind of moment or add people, multiracial Jews and stir, but that it actually forces us to interrogate what we held up as being important about the past and where did those values come from and why do I think certain things are more important and worthy of being told than others. For me, that ends up being, I would say, even if you look back at the the book that came out that was on the Wampanoag community and Martha's Vineyard, that that book was very much about not just the men in the community, but the women and children as well, and, and how they were um, contributing to the life story of the Wampanoag community on the island. So really, across time, I'm interested in this issue of how does the very story that we're able to tell shift? So it's not just that I want to add in a few more voices, but that I need to think about that the conversations change too. And I would say the coherence thing, I feel like I fight with that constantly, that I don't want to have what literature people would call the Heath Anthology problem of American literature, which is lots of cool stuff, no narrative. That I'm not interested in. So you'll notice in this book that I'm really interested in how has family structure changed between 1750 and 1850 that you move from arranged marriages to a discourse about love and romance and people being able to choose their marriage partners. So there is that that larger story that's going on in the background in a story about what's happening with gender, of gender moving 
more towards an emphasis on binary. So I do think I'm interested in narrative, but I don't want the narrative to, to flatten everything out such that I can't hear the people who are in conflict with the narrative all the time. Right. One thing just to follow up on that is you, know, you were talking about adding voices to the narrative. You're talking about understanding diversity within the Jewish community, historically speaking. But you also talked about trying to understand what it means to be an inclusive Jewish community today. So when you think about why this history matters and why this approach matters, you know, to what extent do you think that we can learn from the past in terms of understanding what we want America to look like today or what we want the American Jewish community or communities in plural to look like in the present? Like, what is the lesson of this history? Not in any kind of practical sense necessarily, but you know, what do we take away from understanding early American Jewish history and not disconnecting it from the present, you know, and saying, okay, you know, we're so different now from the way that we were then, but understanding rather the lessons and the takeaways from this history? Yeah, maybe just to give you a concrete example, before COVID hit, I had an, a hands-on exercise that I did with middle school girls and Orthodox schools mainly that was based on this book. So it was about trying to teach them about American Jewish history and they would do create commonplace books. So they would, each of them would have a historical character and they would create a commonplace book for her and they'd go around and exchange different things. And for me, there were several big takeaways compared to what I had seen happening in previous Jewish histories that I felt was so important for young Jewish women today to realize about the past. One was women actually made things. So they, each of the Jewish women had things that were associated with their life that they would paste into each other's commonplace books. Either they were poets or they made silhouettes or whatever they did. So that sort of notion, women as makers and doers of culture. Second was that there was such a variety of women in the Jewish community, right? Some were poor, some were wealthy, some had problems with mental illness in their family, some had African ancestry. There was just a variety of different people. And for me, like looking around the classroom and seeing the girls in the classroom were also diverse too, in terms of their backgrounds and what they brought to that community. And yet in each of the books that they put together, they were seeing how each of the women contributed something, right? That it's not just only the people with money count or the only Jews who are part of history are white Jews from Europe who are Ashkenazi. A lot of times I'll get surprised, like so many Sephardic women, which Sephardic community is always really exciting for the young women. So I just feel like for me, doing those sorts of activities where it's not just about adults and how we understand things, but really trying to think about trying to bring a message to Jews on the ground and growing up we matter, our voices matter, and a variety of voices matter. And that that's been part of American Jewish history forever, right? Like since the beginning of American Jewish history, it's not something that like Jews of color just popped up right now. They're part of that legacy and their voices matter and they count. So for me, that helps create a message of inclusion going forward that I personally hope has sort of helpful resonances with with people in real Jewish communities, as opposed to just, I read a book and I tuck it away, that I, I was really 
trying to think about how could I take the lessons about community building that were going on in the commonplace books and the contributions of women and to make that something palpable for people so that they could see how the variety of voices contributed to creating a Jewish history. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been a really fascinating and I think really important conversation. And thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast. We've got so many great things headed your way. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.